Welcome to the Record of Our Forebears podcast. I'm your host, Roland Godet. And with me, as always, is my wonderful wife and the co-host, Ruth Lee's granddaughter, <laughs> Summer Godet. Hello, hello, hello. So the Record of Our Forebears podcast is where we discuss some of the dopest black folks that you may or may not have heard of. So grab your phone, open up that note-taking app, and get ready to learn something new. So today... We have two more subjects introduced to you. I'm going to start off with uh, Charles H. Wright and Summer. Who you got? Oh yes, I am uh, introducing Mary Church Terrell. Great. All right, so let's get into Charles H. Wright. So I'm just going to start off with this quote: "Knowledge of history isn't a luxury, but a necessity." That is a quote by Charles H. Wright, and Charles H. Wright is a very interesting person. Um, the name may sound familiar If you're from the Detroit area If you're from Michigan The name may sound really familiar And there's a reason why So on September 20th, 1918 Charles Howard Wright was born in Dothan, Alabama Which is uh, like in the southeastern part of the state Near the, um, the border with Georgia and Florida So he's deep south um, he attended Southeast Alabama High School and he graduated in 1935 and he had uh, graduated from Alabama State College in 1939. He got accepted into a medical school in Tennessee in 1939 and he earned a, a degree from that institution in 1943. And according to the Detroit Historical Society in 1946, he moved to Detroit. So he moved to Detroit as part of the Great Migration. Mm. Um, and if you're unfamiliar with the Great Migration, the Great Migration is it's like a period in time from about the 1910 to like roughly around like 1970. It was a period of time where a lot of the black population moved from the South, the Jim Crow South, into northern urban cities like Detroit, Chicago, Milwaukee, um, New York. Boston, like a lot of the large major cities of North, a lot of the black population moved there during this time to escape Jim Crow. They were looking for a better life. Um, they got there and realized that it wasn't really much better up north, but that's why they were escaping there. So during the time that he moved to Detroit, Detroit's popula population during the period which, when he moved actually doubled. So in 1940, Detroit's population was about uh, 150,000 people. By 1950, it was three over 300,000 people. So he moved at a time where the the excuse that's just the black population. The black population doubled in that in that period of time, that 10 year period. So he uh, became um, like I said, he went to medical school. He actually was a leading OBGYN specialist and a general surgeon in the Detroit area. So he was like one of the main, you know, you got to imagine coming from the South. A lot of people didn't weren't afforded the opportunity to get education like that. Mm -hmm. And this guy became a doctor and became mm -hmm. one of the leading black doctors in, in the city. Mm -hmm. um, according to the Detroit Free Press, uh, they estimate that he delivered over 7000 babies. Wow. Yeah. So he was like he was the guy, mm -hmm. you know, in the city. Probably most of those were probably African-American children. So. And uh, so the reason that you may know this name is that is because in March of 1965, he founded the African-American History Museum in Detroit. Now, originally, it wasn't at its current location. It was from it was in the basement of his house and in his office. 
in the uh, on West Grand Boulevard, which is a historical black neighborhood in the city in Detroit. Um, and he just felt like based on the quote that I read at the beginning, he just felt like history wasn't something that we can just afford to kind of look at sideways and just look at, well, I don't have to learn that, but if I learn it, cool. Like he's like, no, that's a necessity. And he thought it was so much of a necessity that he wanted to start an African-American history museum to show his people their history. Uh, he was really involved in the church. He's active in his church. And another reason um, that he started it too was he felt like people were losing like the kind of the, the Christian uh, foundation like that a lot of black people had and he felt like they were losing it because they didn't know that a lot of their ancestors even through a lot of the strife and a lot of the violence inflicted on them still trusted God mm -hmm. and he felt like having them learn the history and learn about those people the good and the bad of the history mm -hmm. would would help kind of mitigate some of the you know remediate some of that those people leaving because of that so okay um, in April of 1997, so about 30, 30 years after he started the museum, they opened the state-of-the-art building at the site where it's at now on 315 East Warren Avenue in Detroit's Cultural Center, and that's where it's still located today. Mm -hmm. And at the time, it was the largest African-American history museum in the world. It housed more than 30,000 artifacts and archival materials, including a visual exhibit which depicted the journey of African-American slaves mm -hmm. to North America, mm -hmm. of African slaves to North America. Yeah, so, I mean, that's, we've been there, you know. Yes. It, it's, it's very powerful. Mm -hmm. it, it can be a very emotional, um, but it's, it's needed. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it, it, it's needed because we can't ignore the, the hard parts of history because we don't want to talk about it because it makes us uncomfortable because it makes other people uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. We have to, we got to talk about those things because if we don't, then we risk never, never uh, addressing issues mm -hmm. that, you know, started in 18, in the 1800s that we still dealing with today. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason we're still dealing with some of those issues is because we won't, don't want to talk about it. True. We got people that are, you know, trying to prevent schools from teaching about this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, man, that's just crazy. Like we shouldn't have that. And I feel like, I feel like I got a kindred spirit with a guy like Charles H. Wright. Oh, that he most feels definitely. Like that. <laughs> I feel like I, I um, me too. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely important. Um, we just we stand on his shoulders, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Um, we stand on the shoulders of of, of Charles H. Ryden, um, and many supporters, right, yep. of a, giving a full scope of history, yeah. um, especially for America yeah. um, and for all of his people group. Yeah. So yeah. Absolutely, and especially as Detroiters, like I know he was born in Alabama, but I kind of we kind of claim him, like he, you know, he's a Detroiter <laughs> now. You know, he, he spent most of his life there. So oh yeah. Um, so on about a year after they moved into the new location, on March 30th of 1998, the institution was renamed the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History in his honor. Um, and he was a prominent figure in the city mm -hmm. for years and years, and he actually lived to the age of 83. Um, he died on March 13th, 2002, and they had a funeral at the church which he was a member at and a very active member, the Plymouth United Church of God, uh, Church of Christ in Detroit. 
Um, and this was a quote from his longtime pastor there. He said, Charles Wright excited us to be a part of history. He fought the good fight. Mm. So, yeah, like Charles H. Wright is is an excellent, excellent dude. Like, get familiar with him. Go mm-hmm. to the museum. Mm-hmm. Go to the museum. Like, I cannot stress it enough. If you're in Michigan, if you're from Michigan, you mm-hmm. haven't been there, like, you got to go there. You need to Like, go. there's certain things. Like, you're from Michigan, where we're from. Mm-hmm. You know, there are certain things you got to do, like you got to go to the UP, mm-hmm. you got to, you know, go to Lansing, the Capitol and all that kind of, of stuff. You got to go see the Great Lakes. You got to go to the Charles H. Wright you Museum. Do. You do. Absolutely. Like I would even add, if you are an American, many of us yeah. cannot get to D.C. We know yeah, most recently, Smithsonian. Yeah. yeah, the Smithsonian included um, an African-American museum. So we have our, a national museum there and the other museums also incorporate uh, feats and mm-hmm. and they celebrate African Americans within their you know um, professions or but there is a museum that's dedicated to that and I would say if you can't get to DC if you can get to Detroit yeah absolutely yeah <laughs> then go to Detroit because I I believe it is a wonderful um, just example of like you said seeing history mm-hmm. um, you know like I said like having like kind of that full scope of history mm-hmm. and it's really cool like a lot of people don't know about this man yep. and it was really um, amazing for me to see I think they had like his first um, medical bag like yep. not, it just was kind of cool to even I bet he never thought that he would be a part of his mm, own museum yeah. in that manner but to kind of see his craft and, and really to see like man like when we think of professions, when we think of medical professionals, like mm-hmm. we think, okay, those are rich people, right? Those right. are the people who can be millionaires or billionaires. And um, I don't know how much money he accumulated, but for him to be able to um, put forth his hard-earned mm-hmm. money yep. towards a museum like that when he knew, well, the state, the city wasn't providing it, the state wasn't going to provide it, mm-hmm. the government. I mean, we just got a national African-American history museum, like, only a few years ago, yeah, like, you know, within the past probably six years. Yep. Before um, 2017, like just yes, before 2017. Yes. So, so um, for him to have that, you know, that thought, like, you know, mm-hmm. people need to understand the foundation. They need to understand the hope, yeah. the resilience, everything that, that you know, African-Americans yeah. had and how their faith um, was a large part of that. Mm-hmm. And, and so just to have that, that thought, like, okay, I need to make this happen now. And yeah. if not... Me then who Like yep. I gotta do it Yeah he didn't wait For somebody else to do it He no. said I'll do it I'll be the one Yeah amazing so, Yeah incredible So get familiar With Charles H. Wright Like What a wonderful story Oh yeah Okay Now let's get into Mary Church Terrell Yeah I'm yes So Mary Church Terrell And earlier I said I want to introduce But you know how this goes Introduce to some Right Right <laughs> um, But she is a familiar um, Person to many So I want to start off With a quote From Mary Church Terrell uh, she said, surely nowhere in the world do oppression and persecution based solely on the color of the skin appear more hateful and hideous than in the capital of the United States. Because the chasm between the principles upon which this government was founded and which it still professes to believe and those which are daily practiced under the protection of the flag yawn so wide and deep. Mm. Mary Church Terrell. 
Now, Mary Church Terrell was born in Memphis, Tennessee on September 23rd, 1863. Wow. Okay. She lived a life of relative privilege. Her life was extremely different. And I, you know, was like, oh, wow, this is another story that we need to hear. Mm -hmm. Her life was privileged um, due to the economic successes of her parents, both formerly enslaved people. Mm -hmm. Her mother, uh, Louisa Church, owned a hair salon and her father, Robert Church, was the first black millionaire in the South due to his business and his real estate dealings. Oh, wow. So she came from a, I mean, even at that time, a millionaire, a wealthy family. However, her faith compelled her still to serve and we'll uh, find out here. So she left her hometown of Memphis to enroll at the elementary school at the Antioch College um, School in Ohio. And she remained in Ohio to attend both Oberlin Academy Mm. and Oberlin College. um, We've spoken about Oberlin College before, right? They were my people. Yes, where your family attended as well. Um, And she earned a Bachelor of Arts in Classical Languages in 1884. She earned a master's degree from Oberlin four years later. Now, although her fam- her father disapproved of her working, mm-hmm. and we could probably think of multiple reasons why, mm-hmm. um, her being black and a female, and hey, we're millionaires, so you probably yeah. don't need to work, <laughs> um, she went ahead and she became a teacher um, after graduating from, from Oberlin. Now, she taught at Wilberforce College in Ohio. We've spoken about this amazing amazing school, um, historically HBCU. And then moving to, um, before moving to Washington, D.C. in 1887, she joined um, the faculty at the M Street Colored High School, which later became Dunbar High School. Mm, So while, yes, yep, Paul Dunbar. So in D.C., she met the man that she would marry, Robert Terrell, hence the Mary Church Terrell, right? He was chairman of the school's language department. Now, since married women could not work as teachers in D.C., she resigned when they wed in 1891. That's such a weirdly specific She had to choose. (laughs) Like married women can't work in the in the capital city. A choice was made. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't even imagine. <laughs> I can't imagine. Like her father was probably like, "Well, <laughs> like, I, I told you." I told you. Know. you. Um, but a year after her wedding, um, there was some tragic news from her hometown. Um, And that motivated her to become a social activist. So in 1892, she learned that Thomas Moss, a close friend. Mm. Um, actually uh was lynched Mm. and we talked about this before um how the lynchings kind of moved a lot of our what are we talking about these these forebears who else have we talked about where lynching moved them do you remember yeah so thomas moss actually was friends with ida wells as well there we go there we go so because she was also living in memphis she was living in memphis so interesting very interesting so ida b wells and both church terrell knew this person and we knew that they were um business owners Mm. right so they were he was a yeah. prominent and it made sense yes. he probably was you know with their family being, yes you know both being there he was a prominent uh person i think he was a shopkeeper mm-hmm. um or a grocery like on the grocery on store, a grocery store and so there was um jealousy there mm-hmm. from uh some of the white owners of stores because of how well his business was doing um but after um uh 
Terrell and Frederick Douglass. Um, they wow. appealed to President um, Harrison and it failed. Um, it failed to produce a public condemn- condemnation of lynching. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, I talked about this before, how we didn't get anything on the books for lynching, for lynching until modern times. Yeah. I mean, recently, remember we talked yeah. about this. If you don't, if you don't know what I'm talking about, go back and listen to our previous podcast. I mean, again, you're talking about again within the past, I'll just be generous and say five years. Yeah. Um, but more recently. Um, so it led her to form the Colored Women's League in Washington, DC to address social problems facing black communities. Four years later, Terrell helped create the National Association of Colored Women, the NACW, and she became its first president. Now, the NACW adopted this model. I've heard this model. I didn't know it was from the NACW. Lifting as we climb. Mm, And they promoted racial uplift through education and community activism. Now, during her tenure as president of the NACW from 1896 to 1901, Terrell became a well-known speaker and writer um, in the U.S. and overseas. Mm. Uh, She supported the women's suffrage movement. We talked about that before Mm -hmm. other um, through through on other podcasts where we had um, African-American women who supported the women's suffrage. um, But we know that they were totally excluded, Mm. you know, at um, during the beginning of that. And we could say all throughout, but they continue to use their voice. So Um, so it makes me just wonder, like, I wonder she must have been close with Ida B. Wells because mm -hmm. she also like it seems like a lot of they have a lot of parallels. Yes. You know, they both supported women's suffrage. They both were from. Uh, or lived in Memphis. She's from Memphis. She lived there. And then being spurred on to activism by the same event. is mm-hmm. wow. By the same event. You yeah. know that they were working together. And yeah. and they both continued to push, even yep. as the segregationists um, tried to exclude black women from yeah. that cause, right? Yep. Um, in 1898 um, and in 1900, Terrell attended uh, meetings of the National American Women's Suffrage Association. Mm. And there she stressed that African-Americans had to confront sexual and racial barriers, Mm. Um, which is just like, wow, she was doing this back, you know, um, in 1900. And we're still having these discussions. Right. Mm. But during a visit to Germany in 1904, she presented a speech to the International Council of Women entirely in German. Remember what her majors were, right? And her husband, too. Yes. Throughout the language department. Yes. So um, they can speak multiple languages. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, Terrell Terrell lent her support to several uh, political causes as well. Um, She was an enthusiastic enthusiastic member of the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know people are like, Republican Party? Yes. (laughs) We'll probably have to discuss this again on another. We got an episode um, (laughs) on that coming. We got one on that coming. Podcast. Um, And she worked as president of the Women's Republican League in D.C. And she also accepted an appointment um, from the Republican Party to uh, direct a program for black women in the Eastern U.S. Mm. And at the same time, she served on Washington's Board of Education, which was, this was mind-blowing to me again because this was an unpaid, so she didn't get paid for this position, um, but she served from 1895 to 1901 and then again, 1906 to 1911. Mm. Um, and in 1909, she signed the charter 
that established a national association for the advancement of colored people, mm. um, what we know today as the NAACP. Wow. So she helped found that as well. In addition to founding and chairing numerous organizations, she also used her writing to advance um, her social and political interests. She, again, um, she wrote scholarly articles. Mm -hmm. She was a poet. She wrote poems and short stories about race and gender. And um, they appeared in numerous journals and magazines. Mm -hmm. In 1940, she wrote her autobiography, A Colored Woman in a White World, and it details some of her own battles with gender and racial discrimination um, in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So after World War II, she joined uh, those increasing efforts to end um, legal segregation mm -hmm. in uh, D.C. So she was able to live. She did live to see desegregation of eating facilities Good. in D.C. And that occurred around 1953. That was not long ago. It's just unbelievable. That's, that is crazy. Um, and then one year later, the Supreme Court ruled that segregation, of course, in public schools was unconstitutional. So yep. we know about that. Um, and she died in Highland Beach, Maryland, on July 24th, 1954. So it was just after the Brown versus Board of Education decision uh, was handed down. And wow. she was 90 years old. Wow. What a life. What a long life. Long life. A lot of... Just a lot of accomplishments and incredible. Just, um, just amazing. Um, she's still like question, like what more could she have done mm -hmm. had not the country um, tried to, you know, I guess separate her, segregate, mm -hmm. um, hold her down because of her gender. Like she's, she's still at the end of her life was like contemplating on what more could I accomplish? Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, how, um, how much more could I help or serve? She took a servant's position when she didn't have to, when mm -hmm. she could have taken the easy way out yeah. and had her life catered to her because yeah. her father was a millionaire. Mm -hmm. You know, her mom her worked too. She had the privilege, mm -hmm. um, but she decided to serve. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of that just goes back to um, her faith her faith um, mm -hmm. but yeah just an amazing individual and um, hopefully uh, if you don't know her you'll go and search a little bit more oh, yeah. on her yeah Mary Church Terrell man like just the idea that um, you would take like most of us many of us would take the easy way out mm -hmm. like that doesn't bother you know I'm not being affected by this <laughs> so I'm good mm -hmm. but she was like no it's affecting people who look like me it's mm -hmm. affecting you know other people if they don't look like me mm -hmm. you know it's affecting people I'm gonna do what I can with the position that I'm in to help people mm -hmm. and so that's awesome yeah wonderful yeah I would say get familiar with Mary Church Terrell get familiar with Charles H. Wright and thank you for joining us we hope you join us next time we'll, where we're gonna introduce a couple of new people to you and uh Get familiar, man. History is for real. Like, it's, it's important. Not just a luxury, it's a necessity. Mm -hmm.